Welcome to TCG's English department's podcast, A Door Into the Dark. This week, we are continuing our discussion on the sixth year single text, Macbeth by William Shakespeare. And in particular this week, we're going to look at the context. So what was Shakespeare inspired by to write Macbeth? And also thinking about our own context and why do we still, why are we still intrigued by the, the character of Macbeth? Pick up every stitch. You've got to pick up every stitch. You've got to pick up every stitch. Oh no, must be the season of the witch. Must be the season of the witch. Must be the season of the So on today's podcast, uh, I, again, Catherine Hickey as your host, and I'm joined by Sean O'Brien and our principal, Alan Cox, to chat about Macbeth and kind of the context of Macbeth and also um, Shakespeare's legacy and I suppose why we still talk about Shakespeare, why we're still studying Shakespeare and, you know, particularly, I suppose, Macbeth as well, but focus on that, like, why does that have such an enduring popularity? Um so, Sean, could you start us off there uh, today? So, we're kind of looking at, I suppose, what inspired Shakespeare to to write to write Macbeth. Um, and I know, Alan, you have done, you've read some sixteen oh six, isn't that right? A year, a year in the life of Shakespeare, and it kind of talks about the, some of these ideas as well that Sean, I think, is going to bring up there. Well, I think one of the motivating factors was money getting paid because he mm. needed to to make a living and to uh, put food on the table. And so um, who is going to pay for a production, a dramatic production? It was uh, the king, King James I, um, decided to uh, give money to Shakespeare to put on this show. And, you know, the English kings come off looking rather well in the play. Uh, and the old Scottish kings come across as being quite barbaric and backward, if we're talking about King, king Macbeth. Uh, and so... Um, I think it was a little bit of a propaganda piece. Uh, I don't know if you'd agree with that, Mr. Yep. Cox or Alan. Sorry, which w- which would you prefer? Call me Al. <laughs> you can call me Al. Call me Al. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I I felt um, when I looked into the the background that there was um, there was an aspect of uh, the play that that Shakespeare was writing very deliberately for the audience who was intending to hear it at that time, which was King James the first. Yeah. yeah, that would be my experience as well. I think I did Macbeth in school, as it happens, and I hated Shakespeare when I was in school. And I only, it was only when I got to Temple Carrick that I, he grew in me. And the, the turning point for me was realising Shakespeare was the Netflix of his day. Yeah. He, was yeah. trying, he was just, you said he was making money, he wanted bums and seats in his theatre, and he just wanted to get people in, so he did his, he did his docuseries, where his histories, and that's where people found out their history was going to shows like that. He'd lash on a good comedy cells, and then... You know, an old romance, you know, definitely is a, a nice one to put in. And he got to a stage where he's thinking, well, like, I need to do a supernatural thriller, mm-hmm. a bit of a horror show. Um, as um, Sean was saying, King James had just come to power. He had a great relationship with Queen Elizabeth, but now he needed to impress a new king who was also 
from a Scottish background. So you want to kind of say, don't go near killing a Scottish king. He wanted to show off to the king. And that's why Banco's descendants, you know, lead to, were a direct line to King James was the idea. He was, it, was a, it was sycophantic flattery, a lot of it, what he put in there, I think, to keep King James happy. Absolutely. And the other context was, uh, you're talking about the, the 1606 book, which is a fascinating read. But one thing, in 1605, uh, a group of, um, uh, what you say, Catholic plotters wanted to get rid of the king. And so they had um, placed a phenomenal quantity of gunpowder. We talked about the gunpowder plot, but I didn't realise just how much they'd put under the House of Parliament. It was going to be enough to kill 30,000 people. Wow. Oh, my God. And 30,000 people, as a proportion of the population of London, would be like if a couple of hundred thousand people of Dublin were now suddenly killed. It was, it was, they were, people were just obsessed with this, what could have happened. Mm. And that was so the following year, people obsessed with the potential murder of a king who's linked to Scotland and he's thinking well I'm going to do a play about that and make a super and they were also in 1606 obsessed with witchcraft mm-hmm. so lashing a bit of supernatural and you're going to get more bums and seats yeah. so it was a, he was a blatant chancer just trying to make as much money as he could <laughs> <laughs> and good on him yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it he, he yeah. uh, I mean not, not only were you know the common folk uh, interested in witchcraft I mean uh, King James himself wrote a book about catching and uh, mm. curing or um, cursing witches called demonology. And so, you know, he was really writing exactly for his audience. Um, but it, what I find interesting with the, the concept of the witches uh, is that it, throughout that time, uh, it, uh, witch hunting was at its absolute peak in the, in the very early 1600s, mm. um, higher than before or afterwards. And, when we look back at it now, we can kind of see that it was sort of a political tool. It was a means of controlling uh, the population because if someone is saying something that uh, does not agree with the status quo and you can turn around and say they're from the depths of hell and we all believe in a very real physical manis- manifestation of hell, then that person, is go- their, their message and everything about them is going to get you know, quashed. And so um, if you were aligning someone with a witch in the same way that Macbeth was aligned with the witches, he is, he's bad news. You know, you, you have to stay away. You do not use him as your role model. You know? Off to the tower with you, kind of that idea. Yeah, I suppose. And yeah. even when we look at, I suppose, King Henry, you know, even that, I suppose, coming up from that, that idea, yeah, like you say, associated with hell. And these were very real ideas, you know, mm. ghosts which appear in, well, actually appears in Macbeth, I suppose, you know, Banco appears as a ghost to, to Macbeth and they really believed in that and they would have absolutely been enthralled and terrified as an audience watching, oh my God, there's a ghost on stage, you know, and linking that, like you say, I suppose, yeah, linking that with Macbeth and that is going to be part of his downfall and he, he does end up. Yeah. yeah, because he fell and became enthralled with their with their words, you know. The, 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 um, the, first, the, the end of the first scene where they say, you know, fair is foul and foul is fair, hover through the fog and filthy air. The, that whole idea of equivocation is something that um, was, yeah, really, really frowned upon. Like we often talk about how uh, Macbeth is a tragedy, but it, but another very popular genre of drama was the morality play. And that would have taken place in the sort of the centuries just previous to uh, Macbeth. So this was a, a sort of a well-worn track by a lot of uh, playwrights. The idea that, you know, mm-hmm. if you fall under the spell of the devil, so to speak, that um, you, you deserve your comeuppance at well, the end. And particularly in the year 1606, because yes. the gunpowder plot plotters were 
based coming from a Jesuit background, and the Jesuit spies in the, in England were being taught to equivocate. So you were you couldn't lie under oath uh, because that was uh, you were going to hell. You mm-hmm. were you the Jesuits were f- firm believers in God, and they didn't want to lie under oath. So the way around it, they, they taught their spies how to equivocate, how to not tell the truth while not lying and not, uh, would you say, perjuring themselves so mm. they're going to end up in hell. They want to be able to lie, uh, have an actual firm oath, but equivocate in a way so that you don't tell the story, you don't give away anybody, you don't tell the truth. Okay, so, very interesting. And, and particularly that year, just after the gunpowder mm. plot, they were, I mean, the UK was terrified, England was terrified that, uh, that um, there were more plots, there was going to be more explosions, that mm-hmm. they were all going to be taken over. Mm. And so they were going around all the country houses trying to find out the Jesuit spies, catch them. And, and when they caught them, obviously immense torture in those days, trying to find out who were they, their links. Mm. And they were equivocating to try and not give away their, their targets. Yeah. There, isn't there, there's a reference to the, look like the flower but be the serpent under it but there, there was a coin minted in and around that time i don't know was it a jesuit coin or there, there's some some relation to it but um that exact image of a serpent sitting under a flower which is what lady macbeth says to macbeth um when when they're plotting the the death of duncan um that's a direct reference to that image so you know the the parallel or the you know he wasn't particularly subtle about the links that they were trying to make there between the current affairs of the time and what they're trying to, uh, the effect they're hoping to achieve. So it's, it's just interesting, I suppose we were talking about King James and this idea, and like you, like you said, Alan, that um, he did have that very strong relationship with Queen Elizabeth, you know, she'd often have him to court and he'd premiere his plays, in, in, you know, in front of her. And it's just, it's, looking at the original story of the original Macbeth, you know, there was an Macbeth, an Macbeth and he um, existed around the, the, the 10 hundreds. Um, and he, as you said, Sean, we were talking about this and... Um, he did kill a, a, a King Duncan, um, but was he, you know, was he as manic as the Macbeth that we see in Shakespeare's play? I think, I think historically, he was quite, the, the historical Macbeth was actually quite successful. He was around for quite a while, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. Numerous decades of, from, it, it's, it's dim, it's back, back there in the memory, so I need mm. to do my research a little bit more. But yeah, I know that definitely there was for, for numerous decades and he was seen as a good king. Um, but he was overthrown, I think, but towards the end, it wasn't a natural succession uh, following. But also Banquo aided him in that. So in, in, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, Shakespeare um, wants to make Banquo look, uh, to come out looking uh, relatively clean out of all of this um, because he is apparently a descend- an ancestor of King James. And so by virtue of that, then King James is going to get... Um, seen as being more positive as well uh so yeah it's um the the uh yeah the, i i just thought it was it was a really interesting thing it's almost like whitewashing history kind of um mm. thing that we kind of talk about nowadays yeah it's yes yeah, so it's, it's interesting and i suppose if we didn't look if we no one wants to see a play about a good king i suppose you know yeah, and, yeah. Mm. um so just thinking about that and like taking that that original story and making it into the drama that it is and like you say making it a a propaganda piece. Do you think Shakespeare is successful in making it that propaganda piece? 
Um, well, there was a civil war about sixty years later. So, I mean, I I, I think he was uh, he was the 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 idea of uh, the divine right of kings, which was the political belief at the time, which was that you know if you were in uh, power, you were supposed to be in power. You you were you were ordained from above that that this this was the role that you were supposed to get. Mm was beginning to draw, uh, th was beginning to become thin anyway. And so it was maybe the last uh, cries for, for that sort of, um, the, the, the last um, uh, promotion of that sort of belief uh, in and around that time. Because trade started to uh, come into play and people were able to change their station in a way that they weren't able to before the, um, the influx of trade and economy and, you know, people were able to, were able to work their way up and gain wealth and that was rather than at the at the end of a sword you know get, get, gaining power they were now gaining it through through um working with people instead so it's um yeah i, I think the uh ultimately it was successful in that king james wasn't attacked but um yeah i don't know i, I i'm not sure what would you say uh, king james always strikes me as he achieved quite a lot but he was mm. very unpopular. I think he, mm. he wasn't a particularly popular king. Um, but whether it was a, successful as a piece of propaganda, my, I, again, I see Shakespeare as the Netflix executive saying, don't really care. I've licked up to him now. Right. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm in with King James. I'm sort of now I've got another 10 years of mm. doing, you know, mm. playwriting to come. Absolutely. He's happy and I'm, he's on my back. That's how he's felt. And I wonder, does he maybe, um, does he get in his little pieces ultimately? You know, like the, the, the idea that... Um, <clears throat> He's kind of reminding everyone that actually, you know, Macbeth is. I've said that on a previous podcast the idea that he he was just a wayward son. That you know that actually there are other people who are there are higher powers that are beyond any one in, independent person's uh, influence that's going to uh, you know have a bearing on mm. on on you. You know that you're you're not entirely in control of these things, um, and also the idea that uh, the idea of traitors kind of coming through like. There's an awful lot of um, uh, circuitous thinking, you know, like Macbeth begins as the noble hero and then he ends up being usurped in the same way that there was a traitor at the beginning. And, and maybe these things just come in cycles. And I think that Shakespeare is sort of alluding to that by the fact that the start and the end of the play are very similar. Um, and it's really, it's, it's, it's who wins is who gets to write the history because it feels like a yeah. historical speech, Malcolm at the end, Absolutely. where he's sort of, and here is, and this is what will be remembered. You know, he was a dead butcher and a fiend like queen and they're dead now, so they can't defend themselves. So this is, this is what history is. We won. So we get to kind of dictate it. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's I, I never liked the ending to Macbeth. I think it, mm. it happens. It stops punctuates very suddenly, but apparently yeah. Shakespeare always gave the winning king had to have the last word. So he yeah, gave him the last yeah. word. And here's a little sum of what happened yeah. and goodbye now. Yeah. Yeah. Is, it's a bit sudden, I feel, at the end. But yeah. it's, it's always kind of the noble character, I suppose, in the end that gets the last, you know, it's the same with Hamlet. You know, it's mm. Fortinbras gets the last. He's, mm. he's the, the reigning king. He gets the last um, words in Romeo and Juliet is the prince that gets, you know, the noble character mm. that gets this kind of, yeah, they kind of come on and some some sum up what's happened. And actually Shakespeare does that a lot, you know, if, it's not just difficult for us as a modern audience, I think, to to watch Shakespeare. It's also difficult for his, you know, they'd get distracted. Uh, they Maybe they weren't listening. He'd always repeat himself. So if something happens, there's always someone that comes on and kind of <laughs> like, well, this is just what happened uh, in case you in case you went to the toilet or whatever happened or mm. you're busy throwing your rotten fruit or whatever, you know. When I look over my shoulder 
do you think I see some other cat looking over his shoulder at me and he's strange sure is strange Who wins? To, for me, surely he's got the the winners of the, are the forces of darkness, the witches, the supernatural. Uh, for, for me, the play works best if you take it. The, I know some versions of the play, the witches are just mad old hags wandering around mm. the countryside yeah. who are just bizarrely coincidentally right in everything they predict. <laughs> but for me, and we, I directed this in my last school. We directed the play, yeah. and we spent about a month just what the hell are the witches? Because that's mm. for me is the key of it. Are they just mad old, you know, crones who just haven't? bizarrely came to get everything predict phenomenal predicting powers or are they people who can who are they forces of darkness mm. and are they using him as a puppet yep. and we went with that we said no the witches have to be the winners mm. and, they ha- and even the very end I, my favourite film version of the play is the Patrick Stewart one mm. because I love the way the witches are so dark and so supernatural and the very end Macbeth when he's, he says was it Leon Macduff and Danby him who first guys hold and he doesn't say the word enough he just um, first guys hold and he's winning. He he wins the battle with Macduff, and then he sees the witches and he just goes, oh, "Enough, ah, oh, brilliant." And it's just, he, he, I'm enough of these supernatural powers. I'm enough of being used by them. Okay, so yeah. Macbeth was a good guy mm. at the start. Yeah, like, well, he, that's he, it. Yes. He has to have some so redeeming qualities there. Yeah, someone has to have really screwed with his head. Yeah, and for me, the witches are the winners because they've just screwed everybody up. Okay. So, do you feel that Shakespeare is kind of saying anything wider than that, or is that just they happen to be the winners in this particular? story that he's telling well i suppose my netflix executive shakespeare <laughs> in this case kind of saying well look you know we want psychological supernatural thriller here mm-hmm. yeah let's lash them people are mad about witchcraft in a minute let's lash in a few witches mm. and sell a few more seats so right. I, I i i maybe because i'm not an english teacher i don't i probably take things at too superficial a level oh i but don't I see know about him, that no, I see that's, yeah i think just you're kind of yeah that's what will get people to come and watch this he and again i was just in, last night i was kind of nervous about what i was going to be talking yeah. about this. <laughs> are the witches like the wednesday adams of the, of their day you know yeah, the people that's are, it. Yeah, love yeah. wednesday we, when we don't question you know as a student i thought the witches oh this is all a bit silly and witches and kind of yeah, and exactly. their lines are stupid and, it's but yeah then, I'll quite happily watch Wednesday Adams and think, oh, she's cool. You know. <laughs> so it's, I think I'll say it, it's, it's hard for modern audience. Like we say, like we have said, they totally believed in this. King James wrote the, you know, demonology about, you know, mm-hmm. witches. And there is that reference actually to the ship and didn't, wasn't it King James, his, his um, ship on a previous trip got shipwrecked and oh, then so yeah, yeah. actually Shakespeare is Aleppo. yeah that's yeah. it yeah so he's actually tr- uh, attributing that to the witches so I think yeah, it is hard as a modern audience to kind of um, believe and believe in the witches like they, they would have in you know in the 16th 15th 16th century um, 17th century um, but uh, I, I think what you're saying there Alan is kind of and what, what Sean had said earlier as well is this idea of fate and I think 
that theme of fate is something that Shakespeare we see throughout Shakespeare's mm -hmm. work, uh, work of yet do we make our decisions or is it something bigger so in Romeo and Juliet you know oh, I'm fortune's fool um, and yeah mm. so that you know this, this, this supernatural force is it yeah so you know how much does fate play I, th I think there's an element of you know um, if you give a carpenter a problem to solve he's going to try to fashion something out of wood to fix the problem um, and I think you know uh, Shakespeare is so steeped in stagecraft and and drama that and and so steeped in the history of it, so the the um, the tragedies, Sophocles tragedies, and everything that that all all the grounding that he would have have received throughout his life, he was encouraged to believe in this idea of of fate, um, and so I I would say uh, you know like it even it starts seeping in you know um, the very famous uh, monologue from Macbeth. Uh, the poor player who struts and frets his arrow <coughs> on the stage. You know he he can't. He sees everything through the, probably through the prism of we all get to tell our story for a moment, but ultimately someone else is writing mm. the play. You know, and yeah. I, I think he probably that that's that's sort of a through line throughout all of his work because that's the that's the tradition that he's steeped in, and the students are probably seeing him he, him as the you know the founding father within it, but he's looking back at people from centuries before and saying, well, I'm just standing on their shoulders and doing the same mm. sort of thing, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I think his view of fate is very much inspired from the, the works that he, that he grew up with and absolutely with as well. Yep. Well, you mentioned that speech because there's a great YouTube clip and it's only about five or six minutes of Ian McKellen talking about how he thought about that speech. Mm. And he said, he, he looked at the tent, at the tense and said, tomorrow and tomorrow, tomorrow is the future. And then another yesterday is the past, but he, he says, and day to day, and he emphasized the word today. Mm. He said, we're just positioned in the today mm. of a much longer time frame. And he definitely interpreted it as that, that we're just part of a big fate that's happening. And yeah, that's where we're located. I didn't like Shakespeare in school. I had funny Macbeth was my leaving her play, and I thought it's the best of a bad lot. And I liked the supernatural thing, and then it was a bit of a, I, I yeah. don't know, it, it fizzled for me. And I had to, and back in my day, we had to memorize massive chunks of it and not really enjoy the play. It was about how much you could memorize. Mm -hmm. um, but I, one of the reasons I've got quite into Shakespeare is seeing my son, who when he was eight, the story, the actual story is a bit of crack. Yeah. And it was interesting to watch an eight-year-old go to. The, I took him to the Globe Theatre. I, now we'd prepped, you know, we'd done, it wasn't, it wasn't Macbeth, but we'd, we'd prepped the play beforehand, I'd done a film version of it, told him what was going on, so he knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. But he didn't panic that he didn't understand every single word. Mm. He just liked the story. And from, to see an eight-year-old just, and we went, we went to the show, and I said he's already cousin, mm. later on, a couple of weeks, days later, I mean, a couple of days later, while we were over in London, we went to see Wicked. And we mm. got bizarre, we were in a raffle, we won fourth row seats, right at the front, and it was amazing. And I said, wasn't that amazing? And he went, yeah, it was not Shakespeare though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so from so we like so to hear. I I, I think, he, and he just he just loved it. And I see him now, and he's twelve. And he's I took him last year to the club again, and he got less out of it. There's something mm. the simple story. Do we overcomplicate mm. it or something? And yeah. what got me is just I said I said once you see Shakespeare as just trying to get tell a story and yeah. get customers to listen to any old story. Actually, the stories some of them are great.
So we've we've obviously talked a lot about the context today and you know what inspired Shakespeare to write the play at that time and why people might have enjoyed the play at that time. But what I'd like to know from both of you is you know, why is it that five hundred years later we are still studying Shakespeare? Where we're still studying Macbeth? We're still going to see productions of Macbeth? There's still films being produced. So last year, uh, one of the Coen brothers produced. Um, a film with Denzel Washington in it uh, as, you know, playing the role of Macbeth. Mm. And I'm just, and I'm particularly, Alan, you know, because you have said like that probably like some of our students, you know, they hate Shakespeare, you know, you didn't, well, you weren't, you weren't engaged with Shakespeare in school, but you've kind of come around to him now. And I'm just wondering, like, what is it about him that you've, you've taken an interest? Can I just to go back for a second? And you can cut yes. this, you can edit this out if you want. <laughs> but just on behalf of John and Ryan, the math department, I have to say it's 400 years rather than 500 years. Okay, sorry, yeah, no, okay, well, nearly 500 I'm just, years. I'm just, I'm in the smart house. You can edit that out, John. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. Uh, if you have anything that you'd like covered in our podcast, if there's something that you'd like to a little bit more know more about, uh, whether it's, is it a poet or another aspect of one of your texts that you're studying for your course, whether it's senior cycle or junior cycle, uh, do get in touch. You can email the English department at englishdepartment at templecarrickschool.ie. So get your requests in. We'll be delighted to tackle some of them in uh, a, an episode in the near future. Thanks, guys.